first exit point from the cycle and this section is called the development of insight we have to know for ourselves what is the appropriate practice at any one time if the mind is very agitated and busy if attention is scattered and running here and there that's the sign that we need to develop a quality of focus a more calm and centered quality of attention that's the case, then in sitting meditation we can focus on the breath, and particularly pay attention to the out-breath, the exhalation. This is the natural way of calming and settling the mind. If the mind is drifting because it's sleepy and lacking in energy, again we can benefit from developing steadiness of attention on the present, but we need to develop the energizing side. In that case, it is, uh, it's helpful to pay particular attention to the inhalation, the in-breath, which is a natural way of brightening and energizing the mind. So those uh, um, uh, say reflections or those, um, those perspectives are, are very much um, spelled out in a helpful, clear way in a, a discourse called the, the Fire or the Bonfire, which I thought I'd share with you today, which is um, about balancing the factors of enlightenment and so this is in the, uh, predictably, the, the Bojanga Sangyuta, the um, connected discourses about the seven factors of enlightenment. And uh, this is called fire. And so the, the, the Buddha is just talking about um, training, uh, training the mind. Friends, when the mind becomes sluggish, which factors of enlightenment is it untimely to develop on that occasion? And which factors of enlightenment is it timely to develop on that occasion? Uh, when the mind becomes excited, which factors of enlightenment is it untimely to develop on that occasion? And which factors of enlightenment is it timely to develop on that occasion? So, when the mind becomes sluggish, it is untimely, or not very useful, not practical, to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, pasadi, the enlightenment factor of concentration, samadhi, and the enlightenment factor of equanimity, upeka. For what reason? Because the mind is sluggish, bhikkhus, and it's difficult to arouse it with those things. Suppose, bhikkhus, someone wanted to make a, f a small fire flare up, but if they throw on wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet timber onto it, spray it with water and scatter soil over it, would they be able to make that small fire flare up? No, Venerable Sir. So too, because on an occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it's untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, of concentration, and of equanimity, because the mind is sluggish, and it's difficult to arouse it with those things. Uh, so then... 
what's useful for this for the sluggish mind uh, on an occasion when the mind becomes sluggish it is timely useful beneficial to develop the enlightenment factor of discrimination of states dhamma vijaya the enlightenment factor of energy virya and the enlightenment factor of rapture piti for what reason because the mind is sluggish and it's easy to arouse it with those things suppose a man wants to make a small fire flare up if he throws on dry grass, dry cow dung, and dry timber onto it, blows on it, and doesn't scatter soil over it, would they be able to make that small fire flare up? Yes, Venerable Sir. So too, on an occasion when the mind becomes sluggish, it's timely to develop the enlightenment factor of discrimination of states, Dhamma Vijaya, of energy and of, of rapture. Uh, so then, with the, uh, the excited mind, uh, on, the, on an occasion when the mind becomes excited, uh, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of Dhamma Vijaya, discrimination of states, of energy, and of rapture. For what reason? Because the mind's excited. Uh, and it's difficult to calm it down with those things. Suppose somebody wanted to extinguish a great bonfire. If they throw on dry grass, dry, dry cow dung, and dry timber onto it, they blow on it and don't scatter soil over it, would they be able to extinguish that great bonfire? No, Venerable Sir. So too, on an occasion when the mind becomes excited, it is untimely to develop the enlightenment factor of, of Dhamma Vijaya, of uh, discrimination of states, of energy, and of rapture. For what reason? Because the mind is excited. And it's difficult to, to calm it down with those things. And then lastly, uh, when the mind is excited, it is timely, it's useful, beneficial, to develop the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. For what reason? Because the mind is excited, and it's easy to calm it down with those things. Suppose a man who wants to extinguish a great bonfire. If he throws on wet grass, wet cow dung, and wet timber onto it, sprays it with water, scatters soil over it, uh, would they be able to extinguish that great bonfire? Yes, Venerable Sir. So too, on an occasion when the mind becomes excited, it's timely, useful, beneficial to develop the enlightenment factor of tranquility, of concentration, and of equanimity. Because the mind is excited, and it's easy to calm it down with those things. And then the last line is, but mindfulness, uh, uh, but mindfulness, because I say, is always useful. So that's the first of the seven factors of enlightenment is sati, mindfulness. Uh, and that... Uh, the, uh, and then the, the next three are the, are the rousing ones, Dhamma Vijaya, Virya, and Piti. And then the, the last three are the calming ones, Pasadi, Samadhi, and Upeka. And then the note on the, uh, on that mindfulness is always useful. Uh, in the, the classic commentary, it says, just like salt improves the flavor of every curry, and a, and a skillful minister improves the governance of every country, then uh, mindfulness is always beneficial. So, the, uh, so that's uh, well, something I often quote. <laughs> so it's not in, it's not in the sutta with a, having a good prime minister, <laughs> having a um, and so, uh, obviously people are more a bit more wary of salt these days, and that salt is not taken as an absolute good in the in the world. But in the in the Buddha's time, it was understood that salt improves the flavor of every curry. Let's see, hundred and five. The notes are evading me. Well, anyway, that's what it, that's what it says. That uh, a salt improves the flavor of every curry, and a, a skillful minister improves the governance of every state. So too, mindfulness is beneficial in every situation. 
So I thought I would share that with uh, with you all as a so good as uh, the Bojanga Sangita, the connected discourses about the seven factors of enlightenment. That's number section forty forty six, and this is Sutta number fifty three. So Sangita forty six Sutta fifty three. If you're interested to look that up for yourselves. So then the last bit of that section. If the mind is quite awake and attention is easily fixed in the present reality, then there's no need to fix the attention on the breath or a special object. If the attention rests easily in the present, then we make the effort to sustain that quality of unentangled openness through reflections on anicca, dukkha, anatta. These are the tools we use to help the mind avoid clinging, to let go of objects of the senses. So any questions or thoughts, reflections, any, any of that? Yes. Uh, is there? Um, well, I'm guessing there is. Where is there? Uh, I can find uh, how to develop the specific factors of enlightenment, like uh, instructions on developing uh, Dhammachaya or something. Um, uh, off the top of my head, it's, uh, it's difficult to say. Uh, starting at the Bojanga Sangita, the connected discourses about the seven factors of enlightenment, just, uh, just fishing through there and seeing what you come across. But um, yeah, there'd be different references. Um, I mean, th- this this book has, uh, and also the um, the the numerical discourses and the Majjhima Nikaya, they're all, they've got, all got really good indexes. And if you're interested in a particular subject, um, and you just go to the index and just look. Uh, I mean, I, when I'm uh, looking up resources and uh, looking up teachings for, for particular explanations or, or um, things I, I'm preparing, then uh, I use that all the time. It's very, very helpful. So you just go to the subject index and, um, and go through, uh, and uh, you can find all sorts of references uh, through, the, through the books. And then Often you come across things you've never seen before, and that are very helpful. Yeah, it's a, 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 a useful thing to do. It's indexed by uh, with people's names, indexed by subjects, uh, you know, and um, also uh, the um, you've got the uh, um, a comparison of the Pali terms for the English terms that they're translated for. All kinds of things in there. Any other questions? Yes. When I uh, hear terms like rapture, so I'm in a sleepy state, I'm completely like you know, nodding off, mm-hmm. and then cultivate rapture. <laughs> first, first of all, like very practically speaking, like how would you do that? And second, could you, um, could Ashan elaborate a little bit on on what actually rapture means? Because you know, like when I hear it, it's like a word like bliss that might kind of like, oh, I have to feel rapturous. So could uh, Anshan elaborate a little bit on on the actual terms? Uh, yeah, well, piti is a uh, it's one of those Pali terms. Uh, another one that doesn't really have a, a perfect parallel in, in English uh, because it's more of an energetic quality than just an emotional quality. So that uh, piti, um, it's uh, when you would say if you uh, if you feel that. Um, like a lot of energy in the body, or like if you're, or if you, if you do you know, yoga or 
uh, Tai Chi or Pranayama and such like, or maybe in your Tibetan disciplines, um, bringing energy um, in, uh, through the body and having arousing the, the body energy, the prana in the body, the chi in, in the body, then that, yeah, uh, that movement of, of the body energy and the, the kind of uh, brightness of, of mind that that brings, uh, uh, that's, or that's a, a large part of piti or rapture. The emotional tone that, that comes from that is often sort of joyful or bright, um, but it, it's in a way the, the basis of it is a sort of energizing of the of the of the system. So, um, in what, what's what's called prana in Pali, prana in Sanskrit, um, and uh, chi in Chinese, with a, probably very bad translate uh, pronunciation, but <laughs> the chi uh, going through the body. Um, that's that's sort of guided by these various disciplines. That's uh, piti is a lot to do with rousing that energy in the body. So, on, because of that, uh, one of the ways that that rapture can be triggered um, is through posture, just paying attention. Because if you're kind of slouched over in a in a, a kind of a listless way, then there's not going to be much. Your your channels are going to be clogged up. You know, <laughs> the, the, you're not inviting the body to be very energetic. So bringing attention into the body, and then paying uh, uh, attention, particularly to the, the straightness of the spine, and then um, what in whatever ways um, uh, you are able to, to sort of bring energy up through the body, bring up through the spine, and to, to um, rouse that. Uh, the, the prana in the, the system. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same in Sanskrit as in Pali, that prana also means breath, like the physical air, you know, entering and leaving the body, as well as the energy in the, in the, um, uh, in the sort of physical system. And uh, Ajahn Tanisra often writes about, when he talks about mindfulness of breathing and keeping the breath in mind, he quite freely talks about breathing through your fingertips and your feet and the top of your head and Ajahn Lee's method of mindfulness of breathing is sort of, it's, it's a very energetic rather than a gas-based process. It's not just about the breath of, of the lungs, but the, the, the energy system of the body. So that uh, it, uh, ways that, uh, that one can de- uh, use to rouse that kind of, or, or free up um, more energy in the, in the system in that way, that's... Uh, one of the, the key methods for sort of developing piti. It's not just sort of thinking excited thoughts or trying to make yourself happy. It's, it's a lot to do with that, working with the posture and the, and the energy system. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And how does it differ then from the virya aspect? Um, yeah, good question. Virya doesn't have so much of an emotional tone to it. And uh, it, I would say it's it's also the um, alertness of the the, the mind, uh, more independent of that energy system. That's how I, how I, I read it. So, um, so that the, the the mind can be uh, very very bright or very aroused. There can be a lot of virya, um, but that not being um, so imbued with with the quality of of piti or, or rapture. I mean, like, like many of these things, they overlap with each other. They're not entirely independent. You, you can't 
so say this is like like with the five khandas, you can't really say you can't really say this is where consciousness stops and this is where sanya and perception begins or this is where feeling ends and this is where perception starts and so on. Um, so similarly with the the seven factors of enlightenment, they they are they, they there's a certain degree of overlapping and interrelationship, but they're they're sort of broad divisions. Yes. I just hello. <laughs> Welcome to the group. You just uh, just come out of quarantine. Very good. Okay, so to continue. With respect to developing this first exit point, it is useful to get to know the experience of dukkha, to notice when the mind is tensing around anything, coarse or fine. If we hear the sound of a bird, if we think the sound is beautiful, we might reflect that hearing the same sound for ten hours would not be satisfying. This would be dukkha made manifest. However, it's helpful to reflect that it was dukkha all along, the very relishing of that beauty. Uh, we just didn't realize it until we followed it through with the reflection on it. On an even more subtle level, we can reflect on the fact that we are not the owner of that bird song. We think we are the person who's doing the hearing, but we can investigate using the tool of anatta. Who is receiving the sound? Does there have to be a me who is the hearer? If there is a me, what does that me look like? Tall or short? Female or male? Young? Old? This is not to create a kind of philosophical puzzle, but rather to eliminate the assumptions that are made about perception and experience. The reflection on anatta is to help the mind recognize that there is hearing, but you can't really say that there is a me who is hearing. Notice how any kind of eye-making and mind-making around any perception or thought is inherently dukkha. Even with just the me who hears the beautiful sound, there's a tensing in the heart. As the Buddha said, and this is um, from the, the Exposition of the Elements, Sutta 140 in the Majima, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. Conceiving is a disease. Conceiving is a tumor. Conceiving is a barb, like a, a sharp hook. By overcoming all conceivings, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken and they are not agitated, for there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, why should they be agitated? So that's a, 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 one of the uh, most obvious instances where the Buddha is talking about rebirth from a, on a psychological level. You know, the sage of peace uh, is not born, does not die. You know, if there's a being, there's a being that, uh, that doesn't die, then he's talking about uh, a psychological quality. Uh, and um, it's also very uh, comparable or very, I would say, closely related to that, the verse of the Dhammapada, which is some, something like the sort of the the um, the motto of Amravati when the when Amravati first opened up uh, a very very frequent theme of uh, Lumpur Sumedha's Dhamma talks was mindfulness is the path to the deathless heedlessness is the path to death the mindful never die the heedless are as if dead already and uh, 
Uh, and you know, Amravati being the deathless realm, you know, the path to the deathless, like you know, St. Margaret's Lane. <laughs> so there's a lot of riffing on those themes uh, over time. And uh, so also the you know, mindfulness, the, 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 uh, the mindful or the heedful never die. Uh, so it, it can't possibly mean that if you're mindful, your body won't die. That's obviously not what it means. I would say, I would say obviously. <laughs> but the, the classical Buddhist understanding of the Buddha's teaching on that is not saying that the body won't die. I mean, his own body died uh, at the uh, Kusinara uh, on Visa- uh, on, under the Visaka full moon. But the mindful never die is pointing to the fact that, that when there's true mindfulness, heedfulness, apamada, then the, there is no identification with the body and the, the, the other aspects of the five khandhas. So uh, yeah, bodies get born, bodies die, but what's that got to do with anything real, really? Uh, uh, that's the, the mind is not identified with all the, the comings and goings, you know, the, the physical body or thoughts or feelings, perceptions, and, and so on and so forth. So this is another instance where the Buddha talks in that way, in a very matter-of-fact way. A sage at peace is not born, doesn't age, doesn't die. They are not shaken and they are not agitated. So uh, also, uh, 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 I was yesterday with the uh, Anagarikas and Anagarikas group, I was mentioning that one of um, uh, Lumpur Cha's teachings that I, I found very impactful uh, it was when a, a laywoman came, uh, an elderly laywoman came to visit him, and uh, she come from a distant province. She'd never met him before, and and she said, "Oh, Lumpur, I'm very, very old now. You know, my time of death is is not far away. Uh, have you got some advice for me?" And he just said, uh, "Those who talk of birth and death are just using the language of ignorant children. You know, don't don't talk or think in that way. You know, that, that, to, uh, to to talk and to think in that way is to." Um, to fill your mind with delusion. If you see things with the eye of Dhamma, you realize birth and death don't really exist. Welcome to Wapapong. <laughs> <laughs> very, very incisive, but yeah, he would teach on that kind of a level when he felt somebody could really appreciate what was being said. And, it was, and also that yeah, her, her, uh, her being a very elderly person, then that was, he felt intuitively that was very good advice for her so that... Um, uh, that kind of perspective uh, uh, on our habits of identification. You know, I am a person. I'm so many years old. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I have this this name, this uh, this background, this uh, family history, and so on. We take those to be um, sort of, uh, solid and real. And then this kind of uh, of advice. You know, any kind of I am is necessarily a, a convenient fiction. It can only be a, a half truth. Uh, also, another of the teachings I thought to share with you today, speaking about not self. Ooh. And there was a while ago there was a question about uh, rebirth. I mean, there have been a few questions about rebirth, um, and so I thought I would share a, a little teaching on that. That these two suttas are side by side here in the uh, in the uh, the. Connected Discourses on the Undeclared, the Abhyakata Sangyutta. So this first one is about um, uh, about rebirth. And this is um, the 
the great Vachugota, one of the, the Buddha's frequent visitors, the uh, indefatigable inquirer. A, he was a wanderer from a different group. He would very often come along and ask the Buddha questions and try to understand uh, how to practice well. So, um, so Vachugota asks, um, uh, he's asking about uh, the different um, uh, p- cases of people being reborn. He said, um, uh, uh, this one was that one was reborn here. That one, this one was reborn there. Um, and in the case of a disciple who is a person of the highest kind, a supreme person, one who has attained the supreme attainment, then uh, when that disciple has passed away, uh, so on and so forth. So he asks the Buddha, um, you know, what is his Uh, his approach to understanding rebirth and the other spiritual teachers of his time like uh, Puranakasava, Makali Gosala, Nigantanata Putta, Sanjaya Bilati Putta, Pakuda Kachayana and Ajita Kesakambali. Um, uh, this one was reborn there, this one was reborn here and so on and so forth. And then the one who's a supreme person who has attained that supreme attainment, that one was reborn there, that one was reborn here. They always talk about some kind of place of rebirth. So he asked the Buddha, you know, um, um, you know, when uh, uh, when when you speak about this, you speak very differently. And what you say is, um, a person who is a, a disciple who is a person of the highest kind, a supreme person, one who has attained the, the supreme attainment. When that disciple has passed away and died, he does not declare his rebirth thus: that one was reborn there, that one was reborn here. Rather, he declares of him: he cut off craving, severed the fetter. And by complete break, breaking through conceit, he has made an end to suffering. There was perplexity in me, Master Gotama. There was doubt. How is the Dhamma of the ascetic Gotama to be understood? So he's saying, all these other teachers talk about when an enlightened being passes away, they go to this or that realm, some kind of super heaven. But you don't. You, you talk about this uh, in a different way, that, that one has cut off craving and has made an end to suffering. Then uh, the Buddha responds, It's fitting for you to be perplexed, Vacha. It is fitting for you to doubt. Doubt has arisen in you about a perplexing matter. I declare, Vacha, rebirth for one with fuel, <coughs> fuel being upadana, the same as the word for clinging. Uh, I, recla- I declare, Vacha, rebirth for one with fuel, not for one without fuel. Just as fire burns with fuel, but not without fuel, so Vacha, I declare rebirth for one with fuel, like uh, burnable material, like uh, upadana, not for one without fuel. Master Gotama, when a flame is flung by the wind and goes some distance, what does Master Gotama declare to be its fuel on that occasion? When Vacha, a flame is flung by the wind and goes some distance, I declare that it is fueled by the wind. So oxygen sustains it. For on that occasion, the wind is its fuel. And Master Gotama, when a being has laid down this body, but has not yet been re- reborn in another body, what does Master Gotama declare to be its fuel on that occasion? When Vacha, a being has laid down this body, but has not been yet reborn in another body, I declare that it is fueled by craving. And the Pali for that is Tanupadana, a combination of Tanha and Upadana. So it is fueled by craving, for on that occasion craving is its fuel. So um, that's a very good example where the Buddha is talking about the rebirth process. Also, for those who say that the Buddha never talked about rebirth, 
kind of amazing that people do say that, but you get fairly reputable Buddhist writers um, and teachers uh, stating this. But this is a, a very straightforward and clear instance where the, the Buddha is talking about how that works. And so when people say, well, what uh, if, if all Dhammas are not self, what is it that's reborn? Uh, or what passes from one life to another? Um, just like flames jumping from one tree to another in a forest fire, uh, sustained by the by the air, by the oxygen, um, the Buddha is saying what sustains a a being, quote unquote, is craving, tanha. So the fuel, the, the fuel, and it's a kind of a pun as well because upadana means craving, and it also means fuel. So like firewood is upadana, and and clinging is also upadana. It's exactly the same word as uh, these two different meanings. Um, and he joins it together, tanha, tanupadana, craving is the fuel. So essentially what it means is what gets reborn is habits. Things that you love, things that you hate, things you have opinions about, that's what gets reborn. And, so, and, when, and if there are no habits, if there's no clinging, no, no attachment, then there's no rebirth. So the next uh, sutta I just thought would sh- I would share with you, I referred to the other day, this is one where the Buddha remains silent. Again, the wanderer of Achigota shows up. The wanderer of Achigota approached the Blessed One and said to him, How is it now, Master Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then the wanderer of Achigota rose from his seat and departed. Then, not long after the wanderer of Achigota had left, the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, why is it, Venerable Sir, that when the Blessed One was questioned by the wanderer of Achigota, he did not answer? And Buddha replies, If, Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Achigota, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, that, uh, this would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists. And if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, this would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihilationists. If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Achigota, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are non-self, sabhe dhamma anatta, which is extremely freak, uh, common saying in the teachings, sabhe dhamma anatta. No venerable sir. And if when I was asked by him, is there, a, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self. The wanderer of Achigota, already confused, would have fallen into even greater confusion, thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. So that's why the Buddha remained silent. So there's, uh, again, some, some notes on that, if I can find. I'm sure they will evade me once again. Yeah, we go. So, so uh, yeah. So I'm, I, I have. Uh, he doesn't translate it in the notes. So I have to assume that all phenomena are non-self. Is the 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 party for that is sabeda anatta. So that uh, is one of the, uh, the famous silent discourse. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, uh, um, uh, and then Vajragata eventually, uh, according to the stories, became a, 
uh, a, a devoted disciple of the Buddha and became an arahant eventually. So it's a, it's a long trajectory of different encounters that Raja Gautama comes with different questions. And one of the Sunday talks I did a year or two ago was on the questions of Raja Gautama. So, any uh, any speaking of questions, <laughs> any questions here on about uh, on conceiving and this uh, uh, this, this this principle? Uh, any kind of eye making and mind making is inherently dukkha. Yes. Yeah. I suppose what can be confusing is the way English works, or perhaps other languages too, about using positive and negative and saying there is something, there is no self. As if there is an entity which is not self. (laughs) Because we are, we can't cope with nothingness, so we feel it with something. So Mm -hmm. even if it's not self, we just make it into something. Whereas what what, what I seem to be saying is that whatever we look at can't be it. Um, And I think I I sort of. it, it sort of clicked a, a little bit for me when I heard some years ago your your Dhamma talk, and you never mentioned it since, but I think you should use it more. Right? Um, you, were, you, were, you were quoting the, the great um, wisdom of Winnie the Pooh again, uh-huh. and uh, it was about people going to visit Winnie, or Winnie going to visit Piglet, I don't know who, which one who they were looking for each other. Let's say Piglet looking for Winnie. And he went to his house and he knocked and there was no answer. So he opened the door and then there was a sentence. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The, the, the more Piglet was looking, the, the more Winnie really was not there. Yeah, the more Piglet looked, the more Pooh wasn't there. <laughs> that's right. That's, uh, I haven't used that for a long time. And to me, that's the perfect explanation for Anatta because really, the more you look, the more you cannot find it. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in uh, in Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> the more Pooh looked, the more Piglet wasn't there. That's right. There's another one, another very good one is um, when Pooh and Piglet are walking through the wood, and they're, they're walking under this, this huge tree, and there's this large branch overhead, and Piglet looks up and says, Pooh, what do you think would happen if that great big branch fell on us? And Pooh said, what would happen if it didn't? <laughs> So, so, I got suspicions about A.A. A. A. Milne, he was a, a, a secret spiritual, a secret sage of, a, of a London in the 1920s. So, any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Um, so that the previous discourse, um, of course, it raises the, the fundamental question of the northern and southern schools of mm-hmm. rebirth and then maybe a possible voluntary rebirth, mm-hmm. even though craving or tana or um, the, um, the other craving uh, has ceased. Upadana. Upadana. Um, that because of the intention of, you know, okay, I don't have to be reborn, there's no more fuel, but I have another kind of habit of wanting to, you know, help others to get out of this, you know, which is the course the you know northern Buddhist schools um, kind of interpretation. So um, is is there ever any mention in the uh, 
that possibility? Uh, well, the, that deliberate rebirth, I mean, the whole of the, the, the career of the Bodhisattva and all of the you know, 540 Jataka stories are all to do with uh, um, deliberately being born over and over again to, uh, to develop the, the ten parameters. And, uh, but you, you don't have it represented in the Pali Canon that, that that deliberate rebirth is free of craving. It's, uh, it's, it's not, you, you, there's no, uh, uh, and it, it depends, because uh, I looked into this when I was doing the, the, the book The Island with uh, Lumpur Pasanno, and uh, we, we, we started to do a, a chapter on the Arahant and the Bodhisattva, and it got to about 70 pages. And we realized, let's just leave this out. <laughs> so, so, because, and in the research for that, I found that you had, even within the Northern Buddhist tradition, you had various different versions of what, whether a Bodhisattva is, uh, is enlightened or not. So in some versions, in some scriptures, uh, I kind of looked at the Chinese ones and Japanese ones and Tibetan ones, I mean just in translations and what I could get my hands on. Um, and so some of them you have, you, have to be an, you have to be an Arahant before you can enter onto the Bodhisattva path. Right? Before you enter the first Bodhisattva Bhumi, there's ten Bhumis, ten levels of Bodhisattva path in most traditions. So, in some expressions, you had to be an arahant before you could even get into stage one. Other ones, you uh, at the seventh level of uh, the seventh bodhisattva bhumi, you, you become an arahant at the seventh level. And others, uh, which is the same with the Pali, you don't reach arahantship until the, the tenth of the bodhisattva bhumis. And they're, so they're all, and they're mutually inconsistent. <laughs> so it was one of the reasons. And, and Ajahn Pasano is extremely straightforward and. Uh, and very uncomplicated with these things, and yeah, our, our draft had ex- literally expanded to seventy, I think more than seventy pages. And he said, um, "Venerable, I think yeah, just why don't we just leave it out?" <laughs> okay, because okay. it'll also be a, 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 a area of contention, and uh, we we were already sort of, I mean, entering into the the role of writing a textbook. It is asking for trouble anyhow. For, uh, amazingly enough, just as an aside, when we published that book, we thought, okay, we're going to get criticisms from all over the, the Dharma realm. <laughs> that uh, people will be uh, you know, upset and irate about our wrong views and misrepresentations and bad translations and yada, yada, yada. But we got almost no criticism at all, which is really startling. I was extremely surprised. We were sort of like, okay... <laughs> Oh, people appreciate it, and there's no kind of diatribes in the in tricycle or Buddha Dharma or the Middle Way. So um, yeah. So anyway, so uh, leaving that out, where there's a lot of um, room for for um, discussion slash dispute, <laughs> uh, it was a, a deliberate move to leave it out of that book. But what I did do. Um, was I took a lot, a lot of that material and, and I, I kind of sat on it for another few years and sort of pondered the whole field. And there's a there's a, a, a an article that I wrote. It's um, which was published in Buddha Dharma, Buddha Dharma, I think, uh, which is called um, the View from the Center. And a longer version of that is in the, the little book uh, Roots and Currents. So and uh, and it's and it's about it's a lot about it's more about having opinions and views about 
and bodhisattva, then arahat bodhisattva. <laughs> but if you're interested, you can look at that. But it starts off with, in this very hall, many years ago, when Lumpur Samadhi was giving a Sunday afternoon talk, somebody, I was sitting about there, <laughs> there's a room full of, full of people, and somebody called out this question from the back, Venerable Sumato, what do you think is the best path? That, that of the Arahant or that of the Bodhisattva? Very English voice, in the back of the hall. And then from this end of the hall, there came this very emphatic delivery from Lumpur uh, Samedi. He said, that kind of question is asked by people who understand nothing whatsoever about Buddhism. <laughs> Then there was silence. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> it really came right from his, from the his center of his being. It was like it was, uh, he he was really speaking to that because, uh, and that's what, that kind of. And I used that as an epigraph at the front of that little article or large article. <laughs> I'm never if I if I can put it in a hundred words, I won't use ten. If I can use a hundred words, I won't use ten. So I tend to be wordy in the things that I, <laughs> I express. But I use that that statement, and also another comment of Ajahn Charles, which was, "Don't be a don't be an arahant, don't be a bodhisattva, don't be anything at all. If you're anything at all, there's trouble." So I uh, so I. Uh, the, uh, I don't negate the fact that there, uh, there are different possibilities of how these things work. I don't claim to have any kind of direct knowledge about the mechanics of the universe. Um, uh, but the, um, the, what, I, what I feel is, is most tricky is the people opinionating and clashing with each other and forming rigid views. Uh, you know, uh, I'm right, you're wrong. And so then, like looking at the whole area, and then talking about, uh, and I, I ended up talking about it in terms of arahat bodhisattva ways of speaking as skillful means of talking about spiritual practice, and uh, the dangers of attachment, um, and you know, clinging to views. The, the, that that's the uh, that's what makes it obstructive. So even the most Sort of noble aspiration, the the ending of all suffering, or the the working uh, to alleviate the suffering of, of all beings, um, a very noble aspiration, but it can be turned into a <laughs> a, a club that you you, you uh, hit other people with, like you, with your with your rightness, and you uh, you kind of use it as a weapon to attack other people, and so that your noble, high-minded philosophy becomes a cause of division and and dukkha. So, so that's how I feel it's, it's, it's most helpful to consider um, those principles um, between the differences between the northern and the southern traditions. How, uh, if we see that the different expressions of teaching, the different practices as skillful means, then um, we're not creating a, a rigidity by not holding to fixed views. Okay. Then we can uh, use the the teachings, those principles, in uh, in skillful ways, that, uh, and then they serve that process of liberation and and uh, working together to reduce suffering, rather than um, than uh, making more division and conceit around yeah, 
our, our path is holier than your path. Or I'm more selfless than you are. <laughs> I mean, it's, some of the, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not, it's not a joke. You do get that. Yeah. My non-duality is less dual than your non-duality. <laughs> <laughs> There's this friend, uh, friend of ours, who um, uh, Eric McCord, who was uh, one of the people who went on pilgrimage with me in India, helped out with that, that pilgrimage for a year in India. And uh, he's got a very sharp mind, and he said that we were, we were talking about um, this kind of area, and he said, you know, what really puzzles me is that people say, I'm really into non-duality. As compared to what? <laughs> <laughs> if, there's not, if, the, the, if the mind is seeing things from a non-dual perspective, what are you comparing your your non-duality too, if, if, there's, if what you're appreciating is the non-dual. Anyway, it was funny at the time. <laughs> I was impressed with his, his uh, mental sharpness. So, let's carry on. When we apply these reflections on Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta in a skillful way, this brings about a change of heart. This sort of reflection, contemplation, changes the way the heart knows and receives the flow of experience. There is a shift from the usual familiar me and my experience to here is the quality of awareness knowing the flow of the way things are. As Ajahn Sumedha would often put it, it is the change of view, the paradigm shift, from seeing in terms of me and my problems to here is the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. This is the awake mind knowing the way things are. You can also see this as a shift from an ego-centered view to a nature-centered view. When we talk about the development of insight meditation, we speak of the active employment of reflections on anicca, dukkha and anatta. But it is important to understand that the most significant aspect of vipassana is this change of heart that comes about as a result of applying this set of reflections, this method. We can sit for many hours reflecting on anicca, dukkha, anatta over and over, but the point is the change of heart that comes when there is a recognition, oh, this is not really me. The mind doesn't have to be tied to, be limited by this feeling, this thought, this desire, this fear. Oh, in that oh, there's a great freedom. That is the point of the practice. Just as the point of preparing and cooking a meal is to eat it and be nourished, if we only focus on the cooking, but do not eat what we have cooked, we might have done a good job with the cooking, but it's not serving the purpose for which it is intended. It's not fulfilling its potential. Assuming, of course, you're not a chef or cooking for other people. But yeah. In this analogy, you're, you know, you're preparing the, you, you would be eating it yourself. To use another analogy, if you have an illness, you go to the doctor. The doctor prescribes medicine. You collect the medicine. You take the medicine. That's all applying the method, quote-unquote. Then there is the state of health that arises when the medicine begins to work, curing you of the disease. The state of health, quote-unquote, is the point of going to the doctor and taking the medicine. It's important not just to apply the method of vipassana, but also to consciously experience the results. Any thoughts, questions? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm
you said that before you said that uh, when you when one experiences uh, me and mine uh, mine main Mm-hmm. There is um, in the heart there is uh, a stress. Stress, yeah. Stress. And then, uh, but then sometimes I hear very often uh, cleaning the mind and um, watching the mind, and uh, sometimes there is watching the heart, cleaning the heart. So um, the. There is the word that uh, citta in, mm-hmm. in um, Satipatthana. So uh, citta, uh, watching the, which is translated sometimes as mind, sometimes as heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, which one, Venerable, consider is the best? <laughs> uh, well, it's uh, again, it's uh, one of those words that um, has been translated in different ways. Heart. Mind, heart, mind, mind, heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I, uh, the jitta is the aspect of the of the mental realm which uh, can be liberated. So that, uh, um, and so that that. So when when it says that the the um, when somebody understands the teaching or has a, an enlightenment experience, then it says that. Um, uh, the the heart was liberated. Oh, it's your name, isn't it, Cheto Vimuti? Yeah, there you go. So, so that Cheta, the Chitta, is the part of the, the the aspect of mind which can be liberated. So, most often, uh, I'll, I'll use heart for that. But I use the words heart and mind fairly interchangeably, not with any, not usually with any particular. Um, so not being particularly, um, say, uh, systematic. You know, just uh, sometimes use the word mind, sometimes use the word heart. So I'm, it's not, uh, I'm not consistent in how I use that. But generally, um, uh, if, I say, if I use a word like, you know, the mind is Dhamma, not, if I say something like the mind is Dhamma, not a person, then I, I'm thinking mind is there is Chitta, or the, the Jitta is 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 dhamma it's not a person but so i might use the english word mind rather than heart just because it seems to sound more appropriate so it's not it's not consistent it's not it's not i'm not systematic in how i use and that's that's very often the case so if you if you're reading a dhamma book or listening to a talk then it's good to say oh you know this or oh, this person must be using that to refer to jitta so Do you see the heart and the mind uh, separate? Not really. I mean, you can say there's aspect. I mean, it depends how people use it. So oftentimes, uh, people use the word mind to refer to mental activity, like thoughts and and perceptions, or memories, and so that that the mind or you know, my mind is all over the place, or like oh my yeah you know, my my mind is really. My mind is really sleepy, or my mind is busy. So, in ordinary uh, use of the word, then it's often referring to my, uh, mind objects or mental activity. And then the heart is—it's uh, it, somewhat better to refer to that the knowing faculty or the or the the more sort of 
fundamental qualities of the of the mental realm. But uh, it, when, when I was growing up, before I, be, I came in contact with Buddhism, then I always just used the word mind, talking about the sort of the uh, in, in, a, in a very sort of expansive way. So I used uh, for much of my life, I used the word mind, referring to those sort of transcendent qualities as well as the mental activity. So it's uh, uh, inconsistent, and it means that it's useful. It's important to listen closely. Um, but uh, if I am specifically talking about mind objects or mind activity, I'll, t- I'll tend to say you know, like thoughts or feelings or memories or ideas and talk about the actual uh, content. Um, and mostly, if I'm using mind or heart, I'm using them interchangeably and using them to refer to that, uh, to, to be um, including that transcendent knowing quality as well. I hope uh, that's not more confusing than before. <laughs> Okay. Oh yes. Yeah. Does vipassana always take the form of sitting meditation, or can vipassana be? Because the um, the assumption is that vipassana always takes the form of sitting, formal sitting meditation, but that's not necessarily the case. Is that uh, no, not at all, really. Um, I think it's within the the Goenka tradition. Vipassana is very much sitting still. They don't use walking meditation either, and mostly sitting and focusing on feeling on Vedana. Uh, but the Vipassana itself literally means it, it means looking inwards, uh, insight, in, or the word introspection. Same English word, introspection. So whether you're out walking around the field or you're uh, helping in the kitchen, chopping veggies, or you're sitting in the temple or doing walking meditation, uh, then that introspective uh, attitude and approach can be brought into into being. And so that, um, uh, and again, it's a, a very, a very common theme of Lumpur Cha's teachings about sustaining an attitude of, of like curiosity, investigation, watching what's going on, and, and encouraging people not to just think, "Oh, the meditation equals sitting still with your eyes closed or walking up and down on the on the jongram path," but rather uh, transferring that reflective um, uh, and investigative attitude, looking at your moods and your feelings, how. Uh, how you are handling a conversation, how you're handling working and feeling tired, um, being with the family and being you know, excited or interested or being you know, irritated uh, in social situations or out on public transport or something. Oh, the, so bringing the attention to that and, and, and exploring it. Oh, what's happening here? Oh, oh, well, this is an unpleasant feeling, but it is changing. Look at that. So even standing on the tube in the rush hour in London yeah, it's a, that's absolutely valid place to be practicing vipassana so it's really that that introspective attitude of sort of looking at what the mind is doing and then particularly as I was stressing there making use of those tools of 
the reflections on Anicca Dukkha Anatta to bring about that change of, of view, that, that, that shift uh, to a, uh, to a uh, non-personal perspective. Like, well, this is the feeling of standing on a train for a long time. This is the feeling of, of uh, being out in the, the cool wind. This is the feeling of delighting in a, uh, a luminous sunset. That's what, that's, uh, that's what this is. And so that it, and then, oh look, it's changed, it's changed, it's changed. Or, or using the reflections on not self, like, yes, there's this experience of walking or seeing or hearing or feeling or, or, or working, but what, what is it that owns this? It does this, I say that I am working or I am talking or I am feeling, but what's the I am that is the, the agent of action or that is the recipient of these feelings? What is that? Even as you're washing dishes or chopping veggies or whatever, then it's then it, that change of perspective can happen in every circumstance. Okay, let's just finish the chapter. We're nearly nearly there for this one. One final point to make on the development of insight is that it might be that we think we are making the effort to practice vipassana, contemplating the nature of experience with open, unbiased awareness, but the actuality might be something different. Is the mind genuinely attentive to the flow of experience, or is it getting lost in moods and thoughts and memories? What's happening? Just because it says vipassana on the label, is that what is actually inside the tin, as it were? If we are, people understand that expression? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, you know, different countries have different ways of expressing these things. Different languages have different uh, ways of it. Uh, that's, a, that's a fairly fairly common one in English these days. That, uh, what does it say on the tin? Or it, it says, or it is what it says on the tin. So, if we are merely calling what is happening vipassana, but in truth the attention is caught in the flow of thought and getting lost. Be aware of that. Use the posture of the body. Use the rhythm of the breath to refocus on the present. Or, if you're applying this process in your active life, when walking or running, use the footsteps. If you're on a chair in a business meeting or in a family discussion, consciously feel the weight of your body as an anchor for awareness. The body is always here, irrespective of how intense the situation might be. Take some time to re-establish the quality of attention. Once that steadiness of attention has been, has been re-established, then there is the quality of focus in the present. Then open the, the sphere of attention once again. We take responsibility for our own practice. We observe and adjust it as we need to. So this is a, a point I, I make on pretty much every retreat that I would teach because we can be very easily conditioned by... Um, a set of instructions and sort of following a system and feel like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and then you know we've uh, that's what it said to be passing around the tin <laughs> so I, I'm sitting here with my eyes closed and the instructions are about vipassana so therefore uh, uh, and then when the when the sitting began that's what I I, um, I kind of had the intention to be watching my these uh, thoughts and feelings and looking into that my mind, my body, my experience. Um, that was 15 minutes ago. <laughs> but now, 
I've actually, uh, I've actually been thoroughly me uh, adrift in these memories, these ideas, these these plans, these these worries, and there's uh, it's what they call vipassa think rather than <laughs> vipassana. So, but it's, yeah, it's that, it's, that, it says vipassana on the label, but actually this is just me uh, me drifting around in my me and my world, floating and and creating and getting lost in my creations. So that being honest with that, just having a sense of, okay, this is not vipassana at all. This is just the mind lost in its creations, and okay, that's what's been happening. Right, and they reestablish that sense of okay, where's the body? Where's the, you know, what's the attention on to re reestablish the posture, reestablish the attention in the present, and we can refocus, and then uh, so set that the actual conditions for insight in place once again. So, uh, so that uh, you know, not checking the signs, as it were, it's like setting off on a journey in a car and then not, not reading the road signs, and then you uh, you you think you're you're driving over to South End in Essex, and then the road signs say Reading, and they say Winchester, and you're not looking at them, and you're you know you're all the way in in Bristol. <laughs> Why did you say Bristol? I was going to I was going to South End. But if because you, you haven't read the signs, if you've been looking at the signs, as soon as you got to Reading, you realise, hey, wait, Reading is west. Uh, I need to go east to turn around and go back. So it's to do with reading the signs and then responding. When we we see the signs are uh, telling us, no, this is not. Yeah, 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 this is not what you what you were intending. You, the things have have drifted, and so. Check, you know, re-establish you know, the right direction, and and then start again. Him again. Except <laughs> <laughs> that I'm not. I'm just, just, I'm just joking. Actually, if I understood you correctly, you sort of interjected at one stage they might just be observing Vedana instead of practicing vipassana. Because mm -hmm. I was doing years back a few of the, the vipassana retreats. Mm -hmm. And in my own experience, and also talking to, to other practitioners in that tradition, sometimes it feels, even though they're not distracted, they might be just practicing shamatha, right? So mm -hmm. Yeah, and that. so that, uh, again, just, just checking to see what's going on, and uh, yeah, the, the mind can be undistracted, but just fixed on a particular object, and not using that reflective wisdom. So it's, it's not harmful or destructive, it's just not... That not carrying out that particular um, task or, that, or, or using that, developing that particular faculty of investigation and, and looking at the, the content, the nature of, of experience and letting go of it to, to um, really develop that quality of, of, uh, of insight. Okay, let's call it to a close there for today. Andamayangamakataya sadhu karangalamase. Sadhu karangalamase.